We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Welcome one and all this evening. We're very glad that you're back tonight for some more time in the Word and song. Our scripture reading tonight is again in the Old Testament, and we are coming to Toward the end of Second Chronicles, I think. Did I lose my bookmark here? That would be bad. Second Chronicles, I did lose my bookmark. And uh, chapter 23. So, remember last time Ahaziah uh, had died and uh, Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, took over ruling the kingdom. This was uh, not in accordance with the word of God. Uh, She was not supposed to sit on the throne. But it says in chapter 23 and verse number 1, In the seventh year, Jehoiada, this is a priest, strengthened himself and made a covenant with the captains of hundreds. Azariah, the son of Jehoram, Jeroham, sorry, Ishmael, the son of Jehanan, Azariah, the son of Obed, Maasai, the son of Adaiah, Elishaphat, the son of Zikri. Now notice, just imagine for a moment, when it says he strengthened himself, do you know what that means? He is saying, I am now entering into a plan to overthrow the queen, who is the, queen, the king, in effect, the queen, and I'm going to make sure that we get the right person on the throne. That's a bold move right there. Verse 2, And they went throughout Judah and gathered the Levites from all the cities of Judah and the chief fathers of Israel, and they came to Jerusalem. Then all the assembly made a covenant with the king in the house of God. And he said to them, Behold, the king's son shall reign, as the Lord has said, of the sons of David. So they made this covenant with uh, the youngster who was hidden with them in the house of God for six years, Joash. This is what you shall do, verse 4 says, One-third of you entering on the Sabbath, of the priests and the Levites shall be keeping watch over the doors. One-third shall be at the king's house and one-third at the gate of the foundation. All the people shall be in the courts of the house of the Lord, but let no one come into the house of the Lord except the priest and those of the Levites who serve. They may go in, for they are holy, but all the people shall keep the watch of the Lord. And the Levites shall surround the king on all sides, every man with his weapon in his hand, and whoever comes into the house, let him be put to death. You are to be with the king when he comes in and when he goes out. So the Levites and all Judah did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded. And each man took his men who were to be on duty on the Sabbath with those who were going off duty on the Sabbath, for Jehoiada the priest had not dismissed the division. So they had a kind of double strength situation where people going off and coming on uh, were there at the shift change. You know about the shift change. I'm sure, and uh, so that was the plan to put the king back in. And I'm encouraged that the people who were supposed to know the word of God 
and follow the word of God, the Levites and the priests were standing up for the word of God. And they were saying, look, God has said the son of David should be on the throne. It's now high time for that to be the case. We have a young lad who's old enough to put in there and, and help to do the work. And so they were about to do that. So it says in verse 9, And Jehoiada the priest gave uh, to the captains of hundreds the spears and the large and small shields which had belonged to King David that were in the temple of God. Then he set all the people, every man with his weapon in his hand, from the right side of the temple to the left of the temple, along by the altar and by the temple all around the king. And they brought out the king's son, put the crown on him, and gave him the testimony. That would be like the law, a copy of the law, probably, and made him king. Then Jehoiada and his sons anointed him and said, Long live the king! Now when Athaliah heard the noise of the people running and praising the king, she came to the people in the temple of the Lord. When she looked, there was the king standing by his pillar at the entrance. So that was another traditional thing. The king would stand by a tall, strong pillar, and that would be a a picture of his power being uh, inaugurated, if you will. And the leaders and the trumpeters were by the king. All the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets, also the singers with musical instruments and those who led in praise. So Athaliah tore her clothes and said, Treason, treason! Of course, she's projecting, isn't she? Because she's the one who was guilty of treason, and she's saying that these guys are guilty of treason. And Jehoiada the priest brought out the captains of hundreds who were set over the army and said to them, Take her outside under guard and slay with the sword whoever follows her. For the priest had said, Do not kill her in the house of the Lord. So they seized her. And she went by the way of the entrance of the horse gate into the king's house, and they killed her there. Then Jehoiada made a covenant between himself, the people, and the king that they should be the Lord's people. And all the people went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. They broke in pieces its altars and images and killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. Also Jehoiada appointed the oversight of the house of the Lord to the hand of the priests, the Levites, whom David had assigned in the house of the Lord, to offer the burnt offerings of the Lord as it is written in the law of Moses, with rejoicing and with singing, as it was established by David. And he set the gatekeepers at the gates of the house of the Lord, so that no one who was in any way unclean should enter. Then he took the captains of hundreds, the nobles, the governors of the people, and all the people of the land, and brought the king down from the house of the Lord. And they went through the upper gate to the king's house and set the king on the throne of the kingdom. So all the people of the land rejoiced, And the city was quiet, for they had slain Athaliah with the sword. So, and it doesn't sound like they were any too sad that she was gone either. Remember, there was a previous king we read about. To no one's regret, he was finished. Just out of the picture, they were glad that was over with and done. So, thus uh, begins the reign of Joash, and he will have a significant impact in the nation of Israel. Well, if you uh, were here this morning, we turn our attention to the teaching of God's Word, you will um, maybe remember, well, hopefully, what I talked about. (laughs) We talked about uh, eternal uh, judgment or divine judgment. And in the midst of that, I, or as a result of that, I received two questions this afternoon, two questions, Uh, actually one in the morning and one in the afternoon. By the way, I should announce to the church family that uh, the church council wants to, uh, it's just a business matter, maybe off to the side a little bit, uh, shift 
the time of the business meeting on September 11 to 9.45 a.m. So it's in the Sunday school hour, not after the service. If we had to have some spillover, we could do that after the service, but we're wanting to give it a little more attention and uh, not be at the end of our rope hungry and tummy and uh, all of that. So that's what our plan is at the moment. So that would be one little change to the schedule. Uh, that's in two weeks, two weeks from today. So the two questions that I received after the Sunday school meeting today were these. The first one was this. The person said, you spoke about slavery to sin, yet sin being done voluntarily. And in the context of the lesson this morning, we were looking at the rationale for divine punishment of sin, and we were looking at uh, William G.T. Shedd's uh, argument that one of the things that makes it eternal punishment reasonable is that sin is voluntarily done. Nobody forced you into it. And so I talked about slavery to sin and sin being done voluntarily. Those two ideas came up in the message early this morning. These ideas, the questioner said, seem to be contradictory. I mean, after all, if you're, are you uh, in bondage to sin or are you free to sin? So isn't it the case that if a sinner's will is in bondage, that he has no choice and thus sin is not, after all, voluntary? So that was the one question, a good question, very good question. And then secondly, the question came up this afternoon. You spoke about free will in the message this morning. Can you touch on free will and predestination? I take it that the questioner wants me to explore the relationship of predestination to free will. Okay, So I'm going to do that for a few minutes tonight, those two questions, just address them and see if we can understand them just a little bit better. Although, I have to say... These questions come up from time to time, and they are really asking us to get into the inner mind of God, if you will, and try to understand his ways. But we can make some progress. Let's do that. About slavery and voluntary sin. In the few moments that I had at the end of the Bible study class this morning, I gave the first question an answer like this. I still hold to both truths. That is, before salvation, we are enslaved to sin. John 8, 34, he who commits sin is a slave of sin. Okay, that's clear. Um, and yet, also at the same time, that we sin voluntarily. I illustrated it this way. Suppose that you are a slave. I mean, like an 1850s slave. And you have the option to buy your freedom. But you like the arrangement that you have because it provides for you certain benefits like housing and food and a stable job, and you don't have to worry about you know, all the stuff that's going on out in the world. You don't have to worry about managing your own farm or whatever. You have some level of protection and a good master and whatever. So you're satisfied with that arrangement. Indeed, perhaps your ambitions are too low for what is possible, but let's not criticize the person for having low ambitions uh, we'll just say, for the sake of argument here, illustration, that they would like to stay that way. Uh, so you um, voluntarily choose to remain in the enslaved state. That illustration is meant to show that although the sinner is in an enslaved state, he voluntarily chooses to remain in that state. 
Let me share with you a concrete illustration of the concrete illustration of the illustration, I guess I could say, in Exodus 21, in verse number um, 5, if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. So here's a guy who is a slave but he's voluntarily so. He wants to stay that way. Okay, so now what do we, where do we go from there, from that illustration? Well, I, I indicated also in my uh, extemporaneous answer this morning that sin darkens the minds of those who are under its sway. Ephesians 4.18 tells us this. And, and listen, I, I'm convinced that when the Bible says that sin darkens the mind... It has to mean something. Uh, some damage is being done to the mind of the human. Something bad is happening. This is not just theoretical. Uh, this is real. Uh, Ephesians 4.18 says, um, regarding the Gentiles and the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. So not only they have a darkened mind, but they have these other things as well, futility, blindness, ignorance, that kind of coalesce together in the one person. Ephesians 5.8 also says something to this effect when it says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So, uh, we have this problem of sin darkening the mind, and it causes, sin itself causes a person to desire to sin willingly. That's the perverse thing about sin. It blinds and deceives its victims into becoming willing participants in it. It's like, and this is a new term, uh, new term to theology, it's like it gaslights the sinner into thinking that they are doing what is good for themselves when they're actually killing themselves. Romans chapter 6, verse number 21, uh, talks about the fruit that comes out of the sinful life. It says, what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Okay, so we have a a bad situation here. By the way, gaslight means to manipulate someone by psychological means into questioning their own sanity. Usually it's not used with regard to sanity today. It's commonly used to mean manipulation with false information to get someone to believe that they're wrong about what they believed was right before. So you thought, well, that's how things are, but then somebody comes along and manipulates and gives you false information and tries to convince you, no, what you see is not actually what is, it's what this thing over here is. That's a common thing. It's, it's, it's like propaganda, fake news, you know, um, repeating the lie loud enough and long enough. It's the same thing that we've heard over and over over the years, kind of stuff like that. Let me give you another illustration. Again, we're still talking here about the voluntary nature of sin as it is part of the bondage that we have to sin. 
A person who has an addiction to smoking or drugs or alcohol is enslaved to that substance. But they willingly and often with delight participate in that sin. Do you know what I'm saying? It is enslaving, but at the same time it's voluntary. Now in later stages of addiction, the person may become sick of their participation in this and become unwilling to participate because the damage is becoming harder to avoid or compensate or go around, but they may feel they still, they're compelled to do it. Uh, like if they don't continue on the alcohol, literally, if it's bad enough, if you just cut off the alcohol supply, they could die, right? So they actually have to have it in order to continue, but they hate it. And that's hopefully what happens to us. We think we need to continue in sin, and then after a while, after we're convinced that God's work in us, that we want it, we hate it, and we don't want to participate in it anymore. Um, so because of this, uh, sin can be both voluntary and a, a bondage kind of thing. So people are morally culpable, therefore, for it, because no one twists their arm behind their back to make them sin. Now, they sin as a result of prior factors. Their sin nature, in particular, is causing them to desire that but they weren't obligated or made, as it were, to do that. So I'm able, in my mind at least, and hopefully it helps you to think, okay, I can also hold, like Pastor Matt does, there's this bondage, but there's also this voluntary nature of sin, all in the same package. Now, then the second question came, and that was about free will, uh, and, and then also about predestination. So... I want to then just merge into this highway of uh, thought here as we go from one question to the second, carrying on then a bit for uh, about this free choice to sin, we can think about free will. Normally, people use the term free will or the phrase free will to indicate that they are free to do whatever they like. With no fetters or obstacles, they can choose righteousness or lawlessness or God or the devil or whatever they like. That's called libertarian free will. They're completely free. They can do what they want to do. It's, it's not exactly the libertarian party, okay, in politics, but it's like that. Libertarians just say, look, leave them alone. Let them do what they're going to do. Let them do what they want to do. I'll do what I want to do. Christian theology recognizes, however, that people are not as free as they think. When they, and we know that because when they become unbound from sin, they become free indeed. Remember I quoted John 8, 34, he who commits sin is a slave of sin? Well, lo and behold, if you go back to John chapter 8 and after verse 34, you look at verse 36, notice what it says. It says, therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. The context is obviously a slave to sin or being made free from sin. So we're not as free as sin likes to make us think we are. It's kind of like what happens, what happened in the Garden of Eden, and we'll get to it next week more particularly, but when we talked this morning about the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve in chapter 3 are going to think, oh, this is actually a good thing. It was actually a bad thing. They thought the opposite of what it was. 
Um, so we can also think that we are free, but we're actually not that free. Think of the bondage in sin that you have as an unbelieving person as a fenced pasture. Okay, Picture in your mind a pasture with a fence around it. We saw many of those on our trip out west. Huge pastures. I mean, fences for... I can't imagine. I'm thinking, man, if a rancher to, uh, hired me to go build fence and you just go build fence for miles. And then once you do it for miles, then you've got to go this way and go miles back that way and then miles back this way. It's just crazy how much space there is out there. But think of it as a fenced pasture. Very large. Very large. Uh, that's life, okay? The way that we are. We, it's a, but it's fenced in. Uh, you can choose to go anywhere you wish freely within the boundaries of that fence. It's beautiful, it's trees, it's, it's uh, wooded areas, it's meadows, it's rolling hills, it's everything you can imagine, it's humongous, it's a large place fenced in for you to go where you wish freely. But you cannot exit the pasture without God lifting you out and over the fence. You are therefore free, yet hemmed in. The generous size of the pasture makes you feel like you have a legitimate freedom. You have a lot of choice as to what you can do. The mistake that we make is that we think this freedom is that actual libertarian freedom. But that's not correct. There's at least one thing you cannot do in that pasture, and that is to please God. Well, there's another thing you can't do in that pasture, and that is to lift yourself up out of it, over the fence, and onto the other side, into the fold of God. So the freedom in the pasture is so great that there are people there who even profess to believe in God in that pasture. Those are what we call false believers. They think, they say, Lord, Lord, but they're not outside, they're inside of the pasture of the bondage to sin. They're not outside that pasture. They think they're doing things for God, but they have empty religious works. They have a false gospel. They, their, their works are based on pride or whatever non-faith and love motivations uh, they have for that. And so they are in this fenced-in pasture. Hopefully that helps on this idea of both bondage and the freedom and the free will and the nature of the free will. I said that this morning. A lot of people talk about free will and it's kind of this very expansive, unlimited thing, but we recognize in Christian theology that expansive though it is, it is limited. It is boxed in by uh, our sinful nature and by our inability to do certain things. All the concepts that we've discussed thus far fit together as we begin now to talk about predestination. The pre-salvation sinner is a slave to sin, has a, a, a measure of free will or what I call free moral agency, and thus moral culpability. He freely chooses to do the sin that he does. No one external to himself forces him to sin. This arises from an internal compulsion, this sin, a natural desire, a fleshly tendency. So... The bondage is not an external bondage like God made me do it. You know, like if God made me this way, why does he find fault? You know, Paul basically says, zip it. Don't talk back to God like that. 
God is the potter, you're the clay. He's the one who gives mercy to whom he will give mercy and whom he wills he hardens. This the internal compulsion, a natural desire, a fleshly tendency for us to sin, not an external compulsion. Well, anyway, because of these built-in deficits that each of us have pre-salvation and when we begin our lives, thus arises the need for God's work of predestination, or what I call election. I'll specify that in a moment. And not only his work of election, but also of monergistic salvation. What is monergism? Remember that? Mon is one, like a, like instead of a bicycle or a, a synergistic, a two, two or more people working together. It's a monergistic. And then the, the verb, the root erg, E-R-G, erg, is the word for work. One working to produce salvation, not two working. It's not God does his part and I do my part, add to what God does, and then suddenly, uh, you know, we've got the result that's uh, sufficient. Christ did all the work. It's monergistic salvation, and then God uh, unilaterally applies that. Of course, then we begin to participate once he begins to apply his work. Predestination and free will are not competing ideas. Rather, here now, because free will is bound and hobbled by the sinful nature of man, and man is incapable of rescuing himself, because of that, predestination is necessary. God has to do something to rescue us because we are unable. The fence is too high. We don't even desire to go over the fence. That's the problem with sin. Again, the depravity of man demands God's prior planning and action to work in the hearts of the depraved sinner to convince him to let go of their addiction and slavery to sin and grasp for something higher and better, something outside of the pasture in which they were born. Okay, you with me so far? So predestination is necessitated by the true nature of free will. That free will is not you know, limitless, it's limited. And because of that limitation, then God has to do something to rescue us, and that had to do something is answered by the doctrine of predestination. The doctrine of predestination is that God freely, this is in the Westminster Confession, I think it's helpful, freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Freely and unchangeably ordained, whatever comes to pass. In the area of salvation, particularly, we call predestination by this word, election. Okay? Election really is a, is a subspecies of predestination. It just has to do with the matter of salvation. That's how I explain it. I think that's helpful also. And election, that is that God has chosen to give grace and mercy to certain individuals in accordance with his sovereignty so that they will be saved. He's elected certain ones to salvation and he passes over the other ones and allows them to remain in the pasture which they love. So these ones that he elects will be saved. The free choice of God happened in eternity past and includes the means, blessings, and obligations of salvation in the life of the individual. And I'll try to say that again, but let me just give you a scripture text here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 13, Paul says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because from the beginning, I'm sorry, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation 
through, here are the means, sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So he, he says, God from the beginning, that's way back in the beginning, chose you for salvation, that's before the foundation of the world, chose you, there's election, elected you for salvation through, here's some kind of setting apart work by the Spirit, and belief in the truth. And I think that order is the operative order. The work of the Spirit is number one. The work of belief is induced by that Spirit and is number two. So again, God in eternity past freely chose certain ones to salvation, and that includes the means, blessings, and obligations of the life of the individual. So the means, what are the means? Preaching of the gospel, belief in the truth, uh, the work of the Spirit. Blessings of salvation, you could list those out. Forgiveness, new life, transformation, sanctification, adoption, and so on. And the obligations of salvation, what are those? Well, love the Lord your God. Uh, obey His commandments. Uh, you know, Keep yourself pure. Uh, all those sorts of things, the, the New Testament commands. All of that is included in God's predestination regarding salvation. Now then, as part of the means of salvation, God's Holy Spirit works in the spirit and will of the individual so that he or she has a change of will, a newfound desire for pardon and forgiveness of sin to be rescued, to be a follower of Christ. Thus, the limited free will of the unsaved sinner is changed so that it desires the will of God. You with me? So the person inside the pasture now, who before was dull to whatever was going on outside the pasture, didn't even desire to be rescued outside of that pasture, he thought, this is perfect, this is great. I've got free choice, I can do what I want. Uh, I can even do religious things if I want. Um, God in, in kind of intrudes, if you will, uh, he... Um, What's the word? Invades. It's, it's kind of a negative idea, but he comes into the life of the person through some means, somebody calling out over the fence, hey, listen about Jesus, you know, and they hear and they hear their need. And uh, God works in their will, and desires to change them so that they want to get out of that fenced-in pasture and get over onto the other side. Some theologians call this action divine illumination. I like that idea. Others flat out call it regeneration, that God gives them a new life right there, and that's how they can respond to the gospel. Um, I don't take it that way. I think they're good texts to indicate there's a process of God illuminating and bringing somebody. It's, at the, in the end analysis, a very instantaneous process in the end of, you know, when salvation actually comes. But um, it's it's a little stretch for me to say that regeneration precedes any conscious faith in the person who is being saved. But that is my uh, kind of first cut, if you will, or just introductory uh, answer to the question, of what is the relationship between predestination and free will? The limitation of free will necessitates God to do something and thus predestination fits perfectly with that. God has decided, here's what I'm going to do with these individuals. And I'm going to apply that work to them because their free will is not free or strong enough in order to get them over the fence. I have to carry them totally from the beginning over to the end 
And of course, in the process of doing that, they become very much willing and very desirous to get over that fence, but recognize they cannot climb or leap or pole vault over it. They need Christ to take them over. So any pressing questions left here on this matter? Again, like I said, we have to enter into this uh, with a little bit of, I didn't say it this way, but fear and trepidation because we're trying to think about the things, the deep things of God with, there's somewhat limited revelation on some of these things. Other, you know, parts of it, there's plenty of revelation. Um, But fitting them together and like trying to figure out, okay, so what is it that actually happened to me when I was saved? It's a little hard because it's, to me, it's, it's analogous, not exactly the same, but analogous, especially if you're saved as a younger person. It's analogous to being born. Do you remember coming out of your mom? I don't think anybody does. You look back and say, well, I certainly know that I'm alive. I have the fruit of it. I'm breathing and talking and thinking and seeing and all of that, but I, I just don't remember that far back, you know? Um, and sometimes, I, you know, I had that when I was a or my early 20s, and thinking back now, when I was, I was I really saved then? Well, I had some signs of life. I was in the Word, and I was in church, and I desired the things of God, but did I really understand? Was I really, when did that happen? You know, and so you kind of can get turned around and analyzing. But what was happening was that God was working in His way to change the will, the mind, the desires, and uh, cause us to see our need. However halting, however imperfect, however uh, incomplete was the knowledge of the 11-year-old version of me or the 8-year-old version of you or the 13 or 15 or 22-year-old version of you, that doesn't stop God. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not that you have to have a, a, a PhD in theology to be saved. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved and let God worry about exactly how that, how that occurs. But it has to involve God. And, and look, if you think that your salvation, you enter it you know, by leaping over the wall yourself, then just assuredly as you leap over that wall, which you don't, but you think you do, it's a, it's a, it's a fake version of that wall, then you're going to leap back. You're not going to be able to keep yourself because you didn't, you didn't save yourself in the first place. That doesn't happen. So we're in, at one and the same time in bondage to sin, but voluntarily participating in it with our free will. And because of that conglomeration of a mess that we're in, God has to operate from the outside. And he has told us in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 that God chose those of us that believe before the in time past, way back, we believe before eternity began, uh, or before time began, I should say, and chose us for salvation in Christ through the sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth with all the means, blessings, and obligations uh, of that. So they all fit together nicely in this way of looking at the Scriptures. Other people are very stern that they look at the Scriptures another way, but I just can't see it. I just can't see it that way. You can try to fit the text together, but uh, 
God has to provide salvation. Convinced. Do you have a question? You have a loved one who's not saved. Okay, God's not willing that any should perish. He takes no death, no no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel thirty-three. They will be saved. They will certainly be saved if he has chosen them and ordained them. No, because remember, no, I, wouldn't, I would say, yes. Becky's question is basically, is there a time when you stop praying? Well, no, because you never know when, if it's, you never know that it's not God's will for somebody to be saved. You just can't know that. See, that's another thing I often say. That's God's business. Election is his business. The list is in his desk drawer. It's not in mine. So I can't say one way or the other. But I know that God has appointed the means as well as the end. And remember, we said that election has to do with the means of salvation. And what are those means? Well, sanctification and belief in the truth. In other words, a work of the Spirit of God and a belief in the truth. Well, you can't do a work of the Spirit, but you can get that person the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, and the means are there for us to use to apply them. Um, So we can pray, God, please save this person's soul. Cause them to encounter the means of repentant faith to hear the word of God, to see the life of other believers, to um, all kinds of variations on that theme. Pray that they will respond. Why God has us pray for so long sometimes and with such tears sometimes, he has his good reasons for doing that because it's also doing something in us causing us to express our love for God, our dependence upon God, our concern for our lost loved ones or neighbors or whoever. It's doing something in us as well. It's developing on us patience. It's changing us, sanctifying us. So God has a wonderful way of, of working in us that way. But no, don't give up on people who are, who are lost. I know, though, the personal experience of being wearied of praying for somebody. Well, I'll pray for somebody else. And then Weeks or months later, God brings that person back to my mind, and I'm like, you know, you could be like this. Well, they're never coming to faith, so forget it. You know, but that's not, you don't know that, right? And you hope that is actually not true, because as we said this morning, it's too terrible, the outcome, if they do not believe. Yes. Anything else? Yes, sir.
so I'm not sure exactly. So you're saying, should we have that mentality of the kind of low percentage satisfaction because of the low percentages? Okay, someone does have that attitude, okay. Well, I would, I would, I mean, the pessimistic side of me wants to say, boy, they sure seem right. <laughs> I mean, because it's a remnant, right? There's a small number. There are few that are, many are called, but few are chosen. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. So it's not, you know, a happenstance that the statistics are the way they are, but I would I would point to circumstances like Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches and 3,000 souls are added. That percentage was quite skewed from what we would normally pessimistically think. There have been times like in the Great Awakening or in the uh, uh, revivals in, in um, you know, Ireland or Great Britain over centuries that God saved a much higher percentage of people and he could do that. We could at some point break at the seams if there's a something that God uses to get people's attention in Ann Arbor and you know, a much higher percentage than normal of people start coming to church and hearing the word and they're saved. I don't want to foreclose on that possibility by lack of faith. So in a way, pessimism is a demonstration of a lack of faith. I think I would try to help the person that way and say, you just don't know. You know globally many are called and few are chosen, but how do you know that God's not going to use you in the life of, say, this family? Mom, dad, and three kids. And the mom gets saved, and you go and visit their home, and you preach the gospel to the dad and the teenagers there or the small kids, and they all get saved. And they all get baptized at the church two months later, and, you know, everything's grand. And you'd say, well, I mean, that's five out of five. That's pretty good, you know. Happy me. I'm so good, you know. No, God is so good. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a blessing to, to, to think that God could sometime do that uh, for us. So I would say pessimism is not the order of the day. Faith in God is. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. Uh, and only really the only limitation is what God decides to do about that. So is there another follow-up or something related? Yes. Get discouraged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good word. Um, don't lose heart. You have a deep um, desire for someone to be saved. You don't know who else is praying for that person or that your prayers, maybe like this mother who's praying for her offspring, passes away. 
her prayers have ceased, but God still sends somebody to their son or daughter to witness the gospel to them. God has, is not done, even after you pass away, possibly answering your prayer while you're in heaven with him. That's tremendous, isn't it? Yeah, so don't, don't lose heart. And remember, there are other people in the same boat uh, Drew suggested to us. Did you have something, Stacy? Yeah, Stacy is saying that part of life is just simply going through life and sowing seeds all over the place. Now, you have to be mindful that you need to sow true seed and not just, you know, think, well, I, I did a nice thing for that person today. Well, we should do nice things for people. That's not the gospel. That's a nice thing, but it's not telling somebody about Jesus. We watched a video a couple of nights back in our home and it was uh, impactful to me because these folks were in uh, Montenegro and uh, what are the other two countries? Uh, Kosovo and um, can't think of the other name. But anyway, missionaries there. And the one missionary was, the, uh, the narrator was explaining this fellow does, he has a three-step program. Pray, make contacts, and tell them about Jesus. That's it. And you see some of the joyful expressions of faith, and you know, small numbers probably, and little homes and remote villages that they were able to go to that never had the gospel before. Amazing. And they prayed over it, they made contacts, and they told them about Jesus. Pretty good plan, you know. And we ought to do the same. You might not know everything there is to know about Jesus. Huh, who does? But you know enough to tell, introduce somebody else to him and tell what he did, tell what he did for you, tell how, he, uh, you know, how you, you've known the gospel and you've learned how to be clear about the gospel. We just went over that a couple of Sundays back, three Sundays ago, I think, or two. Um, and so, yeah, you go through life and you just plant the seeds. I just I, I actually encountered this in my thoughts today as well. You know, we we may think we have this kind of from way back in certain church circles this idea that, you know, you guys come to church and I do the all the work. That is so far from the truth. You know, the percentage of evangelism, let's say, that the church does, of that I do a small piece. Like if there's 50 people, I probably do one out of 50 or two out of 50 or three out of 50. At I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like that's what's supposed to be. So you can't just look at the paid person in the church, the minister, and say, well, he does the evangelism. No, he actually is tasked. He might actually do well to do less evangelism than the average person in the church. Why? Because he's tasked with the job of training you equipping you to do the work of the ministry. So his job description is not exactly 
what you might think if you've had a certain upbringing in the in the church, thinking about uh, you know just coming to the church and doing stuff you know in the church meetings. But anyway, that's another thought that I had regarding that. I I remember years ago, and I wrote in my I have a document on my computer. I call it long-term ministry planning, and in there I track the sermons that I've preached and the Bible books of the Bible we've read and the books I've preached through and ideas for sermons and uh, things that I think the church needs and uh, to hear or to learn and stuff like that. And, um, you know, that, that, that's uh, getting off on a side track. That's, that's an important document to me, an important thing to think about. Um, and one of the questions that is in that document from years ago is from a girl named Jenny who was in the church. And actually there was another similar question, but how, when do you stop praying for a person that you want to be saved? Do you, do you stop praying? So that question has come up again and again over the years, and it, it's a heart-wrenching question. I mean, very heart-wrenching question. Loved ones um, who are lost, they don't seem to want to listen. What do you do, you know? You cry over them. God, please, don't let them leave this life without Christ. Don't let them leave this life without Christ. And you could pray the same prayer, although you don't have the personal connection with say, the neighbor three doors down the street from the church here or, you know, across on the old west side, some soul that's living in one of those old homes that doesn't know the Lord, but they're just as lost and just as much in need. And you think, man, how is that? I don't know. It's, it's tough. It gets, gets to be hard. Think about it. Don't want to drive yourself batty with it, but you also have to uh, not give up. Pray the Lord of the harvest, too, to send out laborers into his harvest because not everybody's doing the harvesting work they should, but there are people who are called of God to do that, and we pray that they will indeed do so. Well, guess what? We never did get to the book of Matthew tonight, but uh, just to be able to say that we did, uh, I'll just read, <laughs> since we have five minutes here, I'll just read the portion in Matthew 22 and it's regarding the, the, the second question that the Lord is being asked. Remember, he's, uh, the triumphal entry has occurred in chapter 21 at the beginning. He's now ministering in Jerusalem in the last week of his earthly life, that is pre-crucifixion earthly life. Obviously, he lived after that and ministered for 40 days um, after the resurrection. But they're trying to get him to trip up. They want an excuse to kill him. So... Um, you know, first they send, uh, you know, the IRS agents after him and say, you know, should you pay taxes to Caesar? And he answers that question and the people are marveled and, and they just were astonished at his answer. Then the Sadducees come around. The same day, it says, verse 23 of Matthew 22, verse 23, the same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, they are just like the theological liberals today. There's no resurrection. There's no supernatural. There's just, you know, life as we know it. You die, that's it, done. They said, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Okay, true. 
and when we do the full study, I'll go to that portion in Deuteronomy. Um, if I recall, it's chapter 25. You can see the notes there online there. Uh, now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Now this illustration obviously stretches credulity. I mean, if nothing else, after about three, the woman would have said, forget it. This family is cursed. (laughs) But for the sake of their argument, we'll let that sit. Uh, Jesus answered and said to them, so, so therefore in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she, will she be? For they all had her. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? Now this is in Exodus chapter 3. I am. Remember that phrase? Very important phrase. I am. Now, God spoke that, and Moses wrote it, and Jesus says, Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So the first group marveled, they left. The second group, time the multitudes heard this they were astonished at his teaching i want you to just let it sink in for a moment what the lord said in verse 29 you are mistaken not knowing the scriptures nor the power of god you are ignorant in two key areas and that ignorance basically disqualified them from even asking the question They needed to go and do their homework before they asked a stupid question. And the Lord is going to show them about their ignorance regarding the Scriptures and regarding the power of God. Okay, They needed to know the Scripture taught. They needed to know the power of God can indeed effect the resurrection of the dead. It's no problem for God. Let's just get off of the idea that resurrection is hard. It seems hard to us because, you know, no amount of you know, scientific research and cryogenic freezing and machines and tubes and plugs and all that can keep somebody alive or bring them back from the dead. It's just not possible. I, I, yeah, I know I hear somebody out there saying, yeah, but what about the people who died and came back? They didn't really die. They didn't really die. Okay, By some, you could say miracle in some cases, they remained alive like the lad that fell through the ice and down into the water and was down there for, what, a half an hour or 40 minutes or something like that. And By all rights, he should be dead, dead, dead. But he revived. Um, and so, no, once somebody's dead and God has ordained them to be gone, they're gone. No resurrection. But God can resurrect them, and he will. Father in heaven, we thank you and pray that your power and your wisdom, uh, your putting things together regarding free will and predestination and the bondage to sin and voluntary nature of sin, all that stuff that we talked about, that all that is extolled to you because you are worthy. You are God. You are in charge. You are the creator of the universe. You are the king. You are the determiner of all things. You have predestinated everything that 
ever comes to pass. Freely and unchangeably you have done that, and even in the matter of personal salvation. Help us to be humble and receive that truth with the appropriate humility and not to talk back to God and say, but God, or rather, just be quiet and listen and humbly take in and learn and grow and show that we are submissive to the Lord our God. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we give uh, you greetings in the name of the Lord. Good night greetings, as it were. Have a good rest tonight. Many of you are uh, getting back into the school swing of things, so we hope that it works out well for you this week. Remember, uh, business meeting two weeks. Uh, prayer, week of prayer, not this week, but the following week. Uh, we do have our regular prayer meeting on Wednesday uh, here at the church this week. And what else can I tell you? I guess we'll hold the announcements right there. Wish you a good night. Amen.